0: Good morning. Good to see you all. So I grew up in Newton, Kansas. I'm getting a little bit older, so there's a lot of newer faces here. Um, My family went over to Meridian Baptist for most of my days, but I attended school here. Um, So kindergarten through eighth grade, I've got some peers that I was in school with. I've got some teachers that could probably tell you a tale or two. Maybe some good, maybe some not so good, all of that above. Um, the last 10 years, my wife and I, Jennifer, uh, she is Donna and Marcy Suderman's daughter, uh, we've been out in Farmington, Utah, where we planted a small church that just always stayed rather small. Farmington's just located north of Salt Lake City, about 15 minutes north. Um, a year and a half ago, Newton Bible sent out the missions team to help us with festival days, this past year has been a little bit different for us as we actually LifePoint Church ended up merging into a new church plant by the name of King's Cross Church. So I'm on the pastoral team. I'm one of the pastors. I kind of head up the outreach and the formation side of things, and it has been uh, a neat thing to see what God has done. There's been growth. There have been people that have placed their faith in Jesus and followed in baptism and. It hasn't been without any bumps and and barriers along the way, but it has ultimately been a good thing to see more people that are hearing about Jesus. We're going to be looking in 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4, you can head over there. Today, the sermon title would be this, Leaving a Legacy. Leaving a Legacy, and I... I don't know what you think of when you hear that word legacy. Maybe immediately your mind goes to investments or dollars. Maybe your mind goes to that of relationships. And perhaps there's an aspect in which both of those can be true. But leaving a legacy, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, you have the Apostle Paul who is writing to his protege, Timothy. And this is the very last part of the very last letter that we know of that Paul wrote. These are his last words. And last words are lasting words. There's richness. There's power to last words. So I grew up in Newton, Kansas. My mom is here as well. She actually had some involvement in school a number of years ago as well. But when Jennifer and I first graduated from Bible College, we went up to Northland Baptist Bible College in Upper Wisconsin. When I graduated, when she graduated, the very first ministry that we took, she was a Christian school teacher, and I taught some Bible classes, and I was the youth pastor in the church. And we had just gotten settled settled in probably in July of 2006, and my parents, Ray and Chris Bansicle, they helped move us out there and kind of get us situated. And within a few weeks of them returning home, my dad was a school teacher here in the Newton School District for a lot of years. I believe the school year had just gotten underway. And ever since leaving Alton, Illinois, where we'd been, and kind of helping us get settled in, he'd been having some stomach issues, some pains. And finally, he decided to go into the doctor. And they did a little bit of digging, and, and they ran some tests. And the tests were not a good result. As they called us on the phone, uh, they told us that my dad had been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And we began doing, at least in my mind, I began trying to figure out, okay, what is pancreatic cancer? You never want to hear the word cancer. But I began to discover you really don't want to hear the words pancreatic cancer. So there in the last year that my dad was going to be teaching before he retired, he began to have chemo and radiation. He had this, this pretty massive surgery, fortunately, that he was able to have called the Whipple procedure that removed some of the cancer, removed part of the pancreas or all of the pancreas and the other things. And, and fortunately, he was able to battle it for a lot longer than most people. Well, during those couple of years, it's kind of neat to see my my dad really got serious, more serious about his faith. While he was taking treatments, he'd be witnessing to other people and things of that sort. Well, eventually, we ended up getting word that the cancer came back and that there really wasn't any further medical option that they could pursue. And that, that last summer, my dad ended up passing away in August. August 31st, I think, of 2008. Earlier in the summer, we got a chance to come back, and Jennifer and I had acquired a little video camera to take on mission trips and just to have around the house. And my dad was like, Hey, uh, can you show me how to use this thing? I was like, Okay, yeah, set it here, and if you want to, you know, you got to point it this way and hit the record button. And then when you're done, just hit this button, and that's great. And what my dad, did with that was he took a time in which no one else was in the house, and he set up the video camera, and he sat down in a chair, and he recorded a last video for me, for my mom, for our family, and just got to tell us basically the last thing that he wanted us to know. I can still go back and watch that DVD, and man, if I ever just want a good cleansing and the waterworks just to fall, man, just just turn on that 10-minute DVD. And, and, and he's been gone for 15 years now just to hear his voice. And that's kind of the scenario that I imagine Paul, as he's pinning this letter to Timothy. And these are his last words, literally, before his life is taken from him, for being a servant of Jesus, and just the power and the importance of these things. Now, if I were to ask you all today, and I won't actually make you raise your hands, but how many of you would say, at the end of your life, you want your life to mean something? You would all raise your hand. No one wants to live a life that has no value. No one wants to waste their life. You see, everybody has all kinds of intentions of accomplishing something. You want to change the world. You know, you can hear about all these good intentions and good goals at every high school graduation that you would intend. This class is going to go out and change the world. We want to leave it a better place. And in order to do that, I think we find here in Paul's last words in 2 Timothy 4, we find three things. We find that in order to leave a legacy, we need to let the word be proclaimed. We find that in verses 1 through 5. We find in verses 6 through 8 that Paul just kind of lays out his testimony, that we need to live a life of faithfulness. And then lastly, we find in verses 9 through 22, the importance of relationships. So we're going to take a peek today at Paul's last words, the power of those, and how someday, whenever that time is, when we approach the end of our life, just as Paul's gazing into his, that we can say and write the kind of things that Paul did. Maybe even make a video, like my dad. Did. Let me begin reading. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. God's word says this. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. And by his appearing in this kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Now, one of the main things that, that Paul is imploring and encouraging Timothy is to have a prominent place for the word. You've got to preach the word. Now, it helps us know exactly what Paul is talking about if we look back at the last few verses in chapter 3. These are well known verses 3 14 through 17 says this, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. All scripture breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You see, Paul's reminding Timothy of the heritage that he grew up with. He grew up within a household in which he would have heard the scriptures proclaimed. Now, at that point, that would have been the Old Testament scriptures, and then it was during these years that Paul and Peter and John, that the Holy Spirit is moving on them to write their eyewitness accounts about who Jesus was and doctrine and teachings for the early church. And Paul is saying, hey, those scriptures, these scriptures that were able to make you wise unto salvation, preach those. Teach those. Hold on to it. Proclaim it. This is how we leave legacy. You know, the scriptures that are able to make you wise and to salvation. And the gospel really, just kind of in a nutshell, is this. As we read through the pages, we find very early on that there is a good God who created all things as good. And it wasn't long after that man decided to become their own God, and to rebel and to choose their own way. And you and I have done those things just like Adam and Eve did in the garden before us. We've rebelled. We've turned away. We have, in a sense, been the masters of our own destiny, and it has not gone well. Didn't go well for Adam and Eve. Didn't go well for me. And I can safely say, because the scriptures say it, it hasn't gone well for you. The Bible tells us that we have all rebelled. We've all sinned just like Adam and Eve, but God, God didn't forsake you. He didn't give up on you, but he actually, through the pages of scripture, we see how it's just the right time that he enacted and went into rescue mode through that perfect God-man who has always existed, born of the Virgin Mary that we talk about this time of year over Christmas. And he came into the midst of your mess and my rebellion and did something about it. You see, throughout the ages, people have tried a number of things to, to repair that relationship that our sin has broken between us and a holy and perfect God. People have tried to to put a Band-Aid of goodness on top of that, and it's never good enough. One sin continues to make you a sinner, and frankly, none of us have stopped with just one sin. People have tried all forms of religion. People have tried their own pursuit, and everyone leaves us broken with this massive gulf between a holy God and sinful man. But God himself entered into our midst in order to bridge that gap between God and me. And he did so living a sinless life. He did so teaching with power and authority. He did so by, by looking after the down and out, feeding those that were impoverished. He did so by doing miracle after miracle, and he willingly allowed himself to be led as an innocent God-man to the cross where he swapped his perfection for our filth and sin, so that we could be made the righteousness of God. So that he could give us his righteousness so that we could give him our son. That is what it means when he says salvation and the scriptures and the gospel that Timothy is being charged to preach. Preach that. Preach the word. Preach the word that can change people from darkness into light. And Paul tells Timothy, hey, preach this word. Because one of the motivations we we see here is that there is a God who is going to judge the living and the dead. That can be a motivation for you and I as well, not just for our own hearts. Hopefully there's been a time in in your life in which you have done just that. You have realized that there's nothing that you can do to save yourself and you've placed all of your weight all of your faith in Jesus Christ alone, and you've professed Him as your Lord and Savior. But it's also a motivation, hopefully, for us when we take our eyes off of ourselves and we look around and we look horizontally. And we realize that each and every person someday is going to stand before a God who will judge. And He uses that as part of this motivation. He says, Hey, Preach the word. Preach at all times. Be ready always, in season, out of season, always be ready to proclaim the word. Now he uses some some language here. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove. That has to do with the idea of appealing to people's intellect. Arguing. In a good way. Um, And a bit of an apologetic. That's the idea of this word. Rebuking has the idea of a moral rightness or wrongness. There are times when you just simply have to tell people, hey, what you're doing is wrong. And I can say that based off of the scriptures. You're you're choosing the wrong path. Turn away. This idea of exhortation is an emotional appeal. It is encouraging, it's pleading, it's trying to stir their hearts to what is right. The uh, commentator John Stott writes this, he must use argument, reproof, and appeal, which is almost a classification for three approaches, intellectual, moral, and emotional. For some people are tormented by doubts and they need to be convinced by argument. Others have fallen into sin and need to be rebuked. Others, again, are haunted by fears and need to be encouraged. God's word does all this and more for it to apply it relevantly. Now, it's interesting. He tells him to do this, and then verses 3 and 4 talk about a day in which people really don't want to hear it. And it's a bit ironic in this because he says, hey, people aren't going to want to endure sound teaching. They want to accumulate for themselves teachers and preachers that are going to tickle their ears and and say what they want to hear rather than what they need. And it's a bit ironic that that Paul is encouraging Timothy and he's saying, hey, there's coming a day when this is going to happen, but the antidote is still just to, to do it. It's to just continue on. Give them the word even if they don't want to hear the word. And man, you fast forward a couple thousand years to our day today. And there are people that are filling uh, stadiums or arenas today, and they're going to get their ears tickled. They're going to leave with a powerful message of positivity, and yet they're not going to hear the other side of the coin of why they need. They're not going to hear the word sin, rebellion, or hell mentioned from the pulpit. Because, you know, that's just kind of a downer to think about that day of judgment. So it's ironic. The culture isn't going to want it, but do it anyway. And man, even though uh, on one side, you have at your fingertips, you have the ability to find all kinds of heretics, all kinds of false teachers, but the positive side to that is, in the same sense, you can find other really solid Bible teaching. I mean, you have the word of God that is so accessible. You have digital reading plans. You have all kinds of ways to be connected to faithful teachers and other faithful people in pursuing the word of God and the word that leads to He closes out this part by saying in verse 5, As for you always, be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Now remember for just a second, when Paul's writing that, did he know a little bit about suffering? Oh yeah. More than me for sure. Probably more than anybody else in this room, I would imagine. He's writing this again, just to give you the background. He's writing it from Rome, where he's being imprisoned for the second time in the Maritime Prison, which was a dungeon. There's a little pit in the ground where he's being held, where he's already had a trial, and things are not looking good for him. Not only is it not currently looking good for him, but he can look back on his life and can say, hey, I was beaten, I was left for dead, I was stoned. I was shipwrecked, and he tells us that in the word. Man. And Paul's saying to this young protege who's handing the baton off to, he's like, hey, buckle up. And if you're faithful, you're going to encounter some of these things. But preach the word anyway. Do so with patience and do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. And I think that leaves for us, uh, you know, just some really questions that we should be asking ourselves. You may or may not ever be called into some sort of ministry where you, you will stand behind a pulpit and literally preach the gospel. But part of that is also the end of that, where he's charged to do the work of an evangelist. And guess what? That's that's all of us. Each and every one of us, that God has given us our own little circle of influence. In Newton, Kansas. In Elbin, Kansas. Heston, Sedgwick. Burton. Uh, I'm not going to name all the towns. But you've got your circle. You've got the people that your kids go to school with. You've got people sitting here in the pew next to you. You've got your place of employment where God has has placed a unique circle for each and every one of you, and He hasn't done so by accident. How are they going to hear? How are they going to know about the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and how they can be bought from their sin and rebellion? with the precious blood of Jesus and escape the awfulness of hell and instead have the beauty of God in heaven. It's you. It's me. So just as Paul was handing the baton and saying, hey, preach the word. You've got to value the word. So I'd give the baton to each and every one of you today and say, proclaim the word to that circle that God has placed in your life. I'd also ask you, hey, this is the word, and Paul thought a whole lot about it. He spent his life teaching this and and studying it and proclaiming it. How do you value the word? Is it reflected in your daily schedule? Are you carving out a time for, for some quiet time? Maybe as you're driving around, are you listening to Christian music where you're being indoctrinated in a good way, things about the Lord? You know, those the accessibility that I talked about? You've got podcasts, you've got all kinds of things. Are you listening to those things when you have opportunity? Are you flooding your mind and renewing your mind with the word that points you to God? Parents, um, those of you that are on the front lines with, with those little people in your home, Do they know that you value the word? Is it something where they see the value of it every fourth week of, oh yeah, I guess for some reason, randomly, we're going to church this Sunday. Are you faithfully gathering with God's people and showing your kids that this is is a priority to be with God's people, to hear about God, to hear this saving message of Jesus? Are you gathering your family around for times of, times of reading the word of God? What does your schedule look like? Does it reflect that you have any kind of value for this word of God that Paul is imploring Timothy to take seriously and to teach and to proclaim and to rebuke and correct and to guard it? Secondly, Look at verses six through eight. And in verses six through eight, you basically just have Paul saying to Timothy, hey, I'm at the end of my life. I'm almost on my deathbed in this prison. There's been trials. They didn't go well. Here's what I can say about my life here as the sun is setting on my time. For I'm already being poured out as a drink." and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And he uses a lot of different imagery in this. And how many of you just, you enjoy sport? Can I see a raise of hands here? I want to know who my people are. All right. You can put your hands down. I mean, there's a part of this where I'm like, yeah, Paul, I can resonate with this. You know, he begins with this Old Testament imagery of being a drink offering that's poured out. You can read Numbers 28 and 29 for that analogy. Um, He uses an analogy in the Greek word, the time of my departure has come. This would have conjured up with the words that he was using in the Greek, the imagery of a ship that is taking off the ropes from, from, the, from the bay. That's not the word I'm looking for. Um, setting off from the port and, and setting off and departing for its destination. These would have been the images that would have come to mind. And then he uses the sports analogies. I have fought the good how many of you have ever put on some gloves and you've gone to a gym or you've actually done some sparring? Anybody done that? Actually boxed? I saw a few hands. You all are crazy. (laughs) And I mean that in the love of the Lord, of course, right? But I, I had never had any desire for that. However, you know, just a good old wrestling match. And, you know, I remember, and I think it actually took place up where the sound booth is now but I remember Mr. Regier taking maybe the 5th and 6th graders during PE, and we had maybe like a month of wrestling. So I'd be wrestling with Robbie and Scott and whoever else, Michael, whoever else was in that class. And, like, I don't remember how the matches went, but I, went, but I would imagine I, I lost some, but I probably won a match at least. And those of you that have little brothers or sisters, Man, if you've ever wrestled and you you beat them and you made them like tap out or cry out uncle, man, there's a sense of satisfaction to that, right? You just beat him. Well, Paul's thinking of this imagery where they had the Olympic Games. He's right into an area where they had that <laughs> and the Isthmian Games, where one of the things would have been wrestling or boxing. Another one of the things he alludes to here that he has finished the race, running events. Now that conjures up days in which I was here at Newton Bible, and we had sports day. Do they still have sports day here? I loved sports day. It was basically like a little track and field meet where you're competing against your peers to try to win a trophy. And, you know, if you haven't ever participated, maybe in an organized track and field event, I think all of us can think back to a time when maybe you're standing next to some buddies, and probably particularly boys. There's just something about boys that's like, hey, see that tree over there? It's on. I bet I can beat you to that tree. Ready? Set, go. And you raced. And if you chose your opponent wisely, you can probably (laughs) even think to winning one of those races. And that brings into the last phrase that he uses here. And henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. And again, the imagery that these folks probably would have immediately had to come to mind The Olympic and the Isthmian Games were the victors. They would have a a wreath made of plants. Nothing with intrinsic value necessarily, but knowing the effort, knowing the toil, knowing that on the day of the race that they were able to win and to have this wreath placed across the victor's neck. And he's saying, Paul is even, as he's saying, hey, I can just imagine standing before Jesus who will judge the living and the dead. And for all those who love his appearing, having this wreath placed across the neck and and hearing the words that we, we read in Matthew 25, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the master. And how rich is this that Paul is is able to, in his literally last days, to be able to pen these things and look back on his life and know that he wasn't perfect. I mean, you remember how his life started out. It was all about performing and doing and working and being the best person that he could be within Judaism. So much so that He was zealous enough that he tried to persecute Christians because he thought they were in error. So he went from that to, to then the last part of his life just on pursuit for God, no matter what it cost him. And they could write and pen these words to Timothy of like, man, I have finished my course. I have kept... And man, there's a crown of righteousness that's waiting for me. And I think this asks or begs the question for us, and how do we get with our life, however many years that could potentially be, none of us are guaranteed it, but how do I get to that point where I could say these kind of things about the life that I've lived? How many of you have ever read the book Seven Habits of Highly Effective People? Okay, by Stephen Covey. You can put your hands down. I don't even know actually if I've read the entire book, but I read the first chapter at least. And that first chapter, you read it, and it tells the story about a guy that's walking into a funeral. And then by the end of the chapter, it takes a bit of a plot twist and you realize that he's actually attending his own funeral and that he hears his wife get up to the front and say all these things about him. He has his kids, his coworkers, his former teammates. They all go up to the microphone, and, and he hears all these things said about his life. And the instructions or the, kind of the point of that is sometimes it would behoove us to mentally have our own funeral and to imagine the things that would be said if we were to die today and then maybe imagine what we desire to have those around us in our circle say to us or say about us on that moment when they're gathering to remember your life. And if you can... Look to the end, then you can begin to kind of take steps when you rewind it backwards. Like, okay, if I want my coworkers to say this about me, then that means today, what am I going to do to do the things and say the things and act the ways that my coworkers someday would be able to say in truth about the way I live? How do I parent my kids today so that years down the road they can stand up and say, Man, my dad, he wasn't perfect. And he taught me about Jesus. I know that he loved the word. I heard my dad tell others about Jesus. So I think that's one of the just practical ways that in the section six through eight, where you're like, man, what a tremendous thing to be able to say those things. Okay, so what are the steps that we take today to be able to to write these kind of things that Paul does on his last days? Lastly, in this section, in the rest of this chapter, nine through 22, let me read these for us. Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas in love with this present world has described me and gone to Thessalonica. Cretans has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas. Also, the books, and above all, the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever, amen. Greet Prissa and Aquila and the household of Anisphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens, and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers, the Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. And in this last section, I was trying to figure out, okay, how would you summarize verses 9 through 22? And I think it gets down to this. A lot of those names that I probably stumbled over and mispronounced, a few of them, like Paul knew these people. People mattered. Relationships mattered. And I think that's something that we could take from this, is to learn the importance of relationship. Now, in my Bible, maybe you've got a few different headings. I have personal instructions. The last little bit is final greeting. But the personal instructions, you see a very just kind of human element of this to Paul. I mean, basically, you can summarize a few of these verses by saying that Paul was lonely. He was cold. Bored. You guys have probably all been there before too. He was lonely, cold, he was bored. Like he, he's writing and he's pleading and hoping that, that Timothy and others will come and visit him. He says that the only one that's with him right now is Luke. That physician, that scholar wrote for us the gospel. In fact, Now, in verses 16, notice this. It's a legal kind of phrase, at my first defense, no one by me. The all me. Now, Paul, he'd been incarcerated by the Roman government. You may know the guy that was in rule during this time. You've heard of Nero. Not a great guy. Um, and things were not going well. He'd been in prison, and we don't know for sure what the charges were. Uh, John Stott says this, though, and it's interesting. We are not told what charges had been laid against Paul, but we know from Tacitus, Pliny, and other contemporary writers the kind of allegations which were being made against Christians at that time. This is interesting. They were supposed to be guilty of horrid crimes against the state and against civilized society. They were accused of atheism. That's kind of ironic. Because they eschewed idolatry and emperor worship. They were being accused of cannibalism because they spoke of eating Christ's body. And even accused of having a general hatred of the human race because of their supposed disloyalty to Caesar. And perhaps because they had renounced the popular pleasures of sin. It may be that some of these charges were being leveled against Paul. Whatever the case for the prosecution, he had no one to defend him but himself. Either because Christian friends could not or would not, he was unsupported and alone. And it's fascinating as you look at some of these names, again, the relationships that Paul has. And some of them he mentions in a positive sense, and a whole bunch of them, are, or at least a couple, are in a negative sense. Some of these names that that kind of come to mind, Demas. We don't know a whole lot about him, but he's being um, being pointed out by Paul as someone who had deserted the faith, who was instead pursuing worldly things. And I think Paul's, Paul's pointing them out to Timothy of like, hey, watch this. Don't let your life become ruined and shipwrecked like Demas. But instead, be faithful. He points out in verse eleven, get Mark and bring him with you. That's fascinating too, because when you read first, or excuse me, when you read Acts chapter fifteen, there in the Jerusalem Council at the very end of that chapter, you have this idea where Paul and Barnabas, two traveling church planting companions that they began to have a very sharp disagreement about this guy, about John Mark. And the tension became so much about whether they should take him or whether they shouldn't take him. And Paul was of the mindset, no, he's worthless. We, we shouldn't take him. That they separated and went their own ways. And now Paul's writing in his hand. And bring Mark. Bring him with you, for he's very useful to me for ministry. And uh, that's encouraging to me, that you can have someone that at one point was a bit of a train wreck in their life, so much so that it cost two incredible founders of the faith to separate ways, and now Paul's looking back on it at the end of his days and saying, man, you know, Mark, I gave up on him at one point, but now I, I, I would love for him to come and visit. He's useful. Don't give up. Don't give up if that's been you that's that's wandered and lost your way. There is a God who loves. There is a God who forgives. There's a God who gives second chances, and any one of us can be useful, just like Mark. He warns, again, of Alexander the coppersmith, not exactly sure who he was, he was a coppersmith. I mean, we know that about him, but man, he he opposed Paul and he warns Timothy and others. He marks them under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that's, that's left for all of this time for us. Hey, watch out for that guy. And then some of the last names that jump out to me would be that of Priscilla and Aquila. That husband and wife duo, that power team in which kind of interesting that her name is actually mentioned first in four of the six times that we read about. But you can read in, in Acts chapter 18 about Priscilla and Aquila. They were the ones that Paul was tent makers next to, probably working with leather. And these were people that were grounded in the faith, so much so that the, when they heard a dynamic young preacher by the name of Apollos, it says that Prissa and Aquila took him and taught him the ways of Jesus. Incredible testimony that they left. And you can see that that Paul is writing these things, these final instructions. He's lonely, he's cold, he's bored, but he's also just kind of giving, hey, greet this person, say hello to this person. And if you're able, come if you can. Again, this is written 64, 65, some scholars maybe as late as 67 A.D. And we don't know for sure who would have ever been able to go and visit after you done these people. Put yourself in the shoes for just a second of Timothy. Your mentor, someone that has invested his life in you, who sometimes is encouraging and giving you all these encouraging words. Sometimes he's he's almost... Like, come on, you can do this. And to, by way of a courier, receive this letter. And especially as he gets to the end of the letter in chapter 4, can you imagine (sighs) Timothy and and probably the tears that he shed reading Paul's last letter? See, last words are lasting words, and that video that my dad made, and it just held so much power because he recorded that and he gave it to us to watch. Not while he was still living for that last month or two, but it was to watch when he was gone, and just to hear one last time. You know, when I played that video, man, I'm proud of. Keep these things as important, powerful. So in conclusion, the legacy that we want to leave will drive the decisions that you make today. Let me say that one more time. The legacy that you want to leave will drive the decisions that you make today. So let's take these things seriously that Paul left us with his last words. Let's proclaim the word. Let's value the word. Let's be faithful each and every day. Let's be making the kind of decisions today that build up in habits and eventually a lifetime of faithfulness where we can pen the kind of words that Paul did in 6 3. And then lastly, you just kind of see in these final instructions and in these final greetings, and Paul valued people. And he valued people because he knows that one day everyone will stand before a righteous judge, and that all people will give an account for what they have done with Jesus. Whether they've given their allegiance and full faith to him, or if they have turned aside and been their own God. Let's proclaim the word. Let's be faithful each day. Let's value people. And notice, as you read this, and even in my dad's video, one thing that struck me, it's not written from a place of fear. It's written from a place of security. Written from a place of rest, because they know that they've given their life to things. They invested where the investment will pay unmentionable, un- unfathomable reward. And they know that they're secure in Christ. And they know that whenever this day comes, whenever Rome finally puts the hammer down, that that's just sweet because that's the day I get to be. Well, let's, let's be thinking of our legacy. Let's be thinking of that baton, who we're going to be able to pass it on to, and let's be faithful today. And let's rest in the security that we have in Christ. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. May we be faithful. May we value it. May we proclaim it to others. Pray that we would be making the kind of decisions in our workplace, in our neighborhoods, and our families that we'd be able to to slowly, day by day, just be faithful and to build the kind of legacy um, that's going to matter, that's going to last, that's going to be viewing people as important, that's going to be valuing our relationship with Jesus and wanting to see as many people know him as possible. We ask for your strength. We ask for your power to be able to. In and of our own strength, we fail continually. And for those that are in Christ, I just pray that today that we'd be able to just rest not in fear but in security in our relationship with Jesus. Because you've accomplished everything. And from that place of security, from that thriving relationship, may we just act in the power of your spirit to live a life that will leave. A legacy. Pray for this in your name, amen.